This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. So in in 1975, outlaw country singer, one of my favorites, I used to not like him, outlaw country singer, Willie Nelson released an album, some of you refined and, you know, mature folk, leave that there, you may remember, it's called Red-Headed Stranger, Red-Headed Stranger, it had many hits, one of them was Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, how many of you all know that song? Yep, we see some. Rhonda's like shaking her head. She was listening to that one coming over this morning, I think. So what made this album so unique is that Nelson picked up on an idea musically that that, uh, seemed to be around for only about a decade at the time. The entire album of Redheaded Stranger tells a singular story with each song carrying the plot along like a a musical with no visual scenes, right? I, I pray that this is not some sort of uh, you know, prophecy, but the, the album was about a preacher who shot and killed his wife because she was cheating on him. <laughs> That's what the whole album is, is about. But Redheaded Stranger is what is known as a concept album, a concept album. Concept albums aren't a bunch of random songs like we see albums all the time being really. Rather, they're albums that tell one big story through many musical means. Some other popular ones that you may have heard of are Sgt. Pepper, right? You know, the Beatles one. What about you uh, you hippie guys that went through the hippie revolution with Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, right, by Pink Floyd? There's one uh, group when I was growing up called My Chemical Romance. They had one called The Black Parade. Very emo, lots of, you know, like mascara and stuff. Every song, while an individual song is part of a connected whole that tells a story. What is interesting is this. The the concept album is thought to have officially been thought up in the 60s by a band called The Kinks. But today we're going to see concept album is actually of the Lord. Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for bringing us together to go to your word. We pray that you would graciously open our minds to receive the implanted word of your scriptures. Would you water us with your word and wash the Holy Spirit? Uh, would the Holy Spirit wash us so that we would bear fruit? Would we revel in your word and we exalt the word made flesh, your son, Jesus Christ, whom we desire to be more like each day and follow you for your good, for our good and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the concept album, as we, we think about a concept album of songs that tell one big story, This morning, it's going to seem a little odd, but we're going to go to Deuteronomy 31. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 31. We'll be in verses 16 through 22, and it's kind of our grounding text to kind of get us going into the Psalter today. Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 22.
hear the word of God. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured, and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because of our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring." For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. The great reformer, Martin Luther, was not only a fiery preacher, he was a gifted musician as well writing various hymns and settings to psalms in his lifetime. The most famous of his was, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That was based off of Psalm 46. He would so often tell his protege, Philip Melanchthon, Philip, let's sing the 46th, and they would break out in song. Luther spoke concerning music regularly with vigor and with truth. Next to the word of God, Luther says, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given that he should proclaim the word of God through music. Ooh. Luther also says this, He who does not find that great and perfect wisdom of God in his wonderful work of music is truly, I love Luther, he's truly a clod and is not worthy to be considered a man. Luther says, if you don't like music, that praises the Lord, you know what you are? You're a moron. That's what he says. Luther was fiery, wasn't he? Stout words from the stout German. But here's the thing. Are Luther's opinions true, or are they merely his opinions just there? Are they his subjective thoughts? Well, today, we will see before us in the Scriptures that Luther's sentiments towards music and poetry are entirely scriptural and call us to the awe and wonder of the gift of music. When we begin thinking about God and his word to us, we often think about what? The Ten Commandments, or maybe the Gospel of John, or maybe the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, right? What about David and Goliath? Slings that stone in that giant's head. What about Paul and his radical conversion on the road to Damascus? We usually think of these grand narratives, and we should, we should, but have you ever stopped and marveled at this fact? The largest book of the scriptures are not narrative, is not narrative, but a collection of poetic songs. Have you ever stopped to think about that? 
the largest book of the scriptures isn't narrative, like history. It's songs. Now, what do you think that tells us about God's disposition towards music and poetry? Eh. Take it or leave it. It's just okay, I guess. Yeah, you can sing to me if you want. No, of course not. The fact that the largest book of the scriptures is that of music tells us music and poetry are a core component of who God is. What we would call the arts, they they magnify the glorious creativity of the Lord and display our delight of his beauty and the expression of every aspect of who he is in creation. And if music is a sacred thing that God himself has given and is in a way part of him, his role of creator, then then we who are his people should have a holy and high view of music and honestly the arts in general. The reason for this, that we should love music and, and go with what Luther says of not being a moron about music is we, you, dear listener, are a living, breathing piece of art. How many times have you ever heard this, this idiom? Yeah, he's a, he's a piece, isn't he? He's a work. No, actually, that's quite true. That's used in the wrong way. But we are. We are living, breathing pieces of art. We, humanity, are symbols, living images reflecting God, for this is the preeminent declaration that God gave about man when God crowned man as the glory of all creation. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We as human beings reflect God by creating with beauty and purpose and echoing and reflecting the glorious and beautiful God of creation. Thus, if that's the case, and it is, We must arrive quickly at this profound truth. Everything is theological. Everything. There is no neutrality. Everything concerns itself in some way with God. And why wouldn't it? Acts 17, Paul at Mars Hill says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Cannot escape God. There is no neutrality. Music is not just an art. It's not just something we do to express ourselves. It's not just something that we do whenever we're really excited about killing a deer in the woods or getting that fish or the ball game or whatever. It's not just something that just comes out of us. It's not baseless. Modern art is actually a reflection of decreation, the ugly, the demonic. I saw a news story this week that some kid at an art museum saw a banana duct taped to the wall, and he was hungry and thought that was how the museum gave out snacks, and so he took it down and ate it, but it was a like million-dollar piece of art. A banana duct taped to the wall. Moms and dads, hey, rejoice. You might have Picassos in your midst that color on the wall, a bunch of scribbles. Don't, don't just leave it there. You might get paid for that one day, right? It's, it's baseless. Like, that's, that's art? But that's the purpose. That's the purpose. It's without form and void like creation was at the beginning. 
modern art, classical music, the song of a robin, or the poem that you wrote to your now wife, they all converge with this idea that we can't escape, that all art has a message no matter the medium. That is why from the beginning of creation, music and poetry have been used to teach us with clarity the message of God. And indeed, God himself has delighted to compose hundreds of authoritative songs, special revelation in the scriptures that resonate in perfect harmony with the song of natural revelation of the robins and the trees and the wind and the beauty. So it would do us well, church, to study the Psalms, the hymn book of Scripture, with an attitude of, of, of reverence and excitement that not only has God spoken to us clearly in creation and His Word, but that He sings to us and calls us to join in that choir of glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. So our text this morning from Deuteronomy 31 displays all of these introductory thoughts. Deuteronomy 32, which follows, you know, 31, 32, that's how that works. What's known as the Song of Moses, but it's not really Moses' song because we just heard that, that God, Yahweh, tells Moses, you teach them this song that I'm giving you. It's actually the song of, of Yahweh, as we'll see later on. And while, yes, it's not in the Psalter, or is it? It might be. Hmm. It serves as, as a preface to our, our sermon series of studying the Psalms today. God gave a song to Moses and to Joshua, and they in turn gave it and taught it to the people of Israel to act as a witness, a covenant witness, to declare who God is, what he has done, what he does and will do, who man is, and what man will do. The song of Yahweh was like a national anthem, so to speak, for Israel. This was like Israel's, Jose, can you see? Jose, right? It was a national anthem for them. It was not to depart from their mouths, it said. And what's a national anthem? A national anthem is just a creed, isn't it? It's a creed. When we think of creeds, we think of documents like the Apostles' Creed. Great. The, the word creed as many of you know, comes from the Latin word credo, which means to believe or to profess. To believe or to profess. Creeds are statements of affirmation concerning a particular set of beliefs or identity. And that's exactly what a national anthem is, a creed set to music. Deuteronomy 32 is. But Deuteronomy 32 presses us into the reality that the Psalter, the collection of psalms, is an anthology of creeds that all confess and proclaim a singular message, a divine concept album. It wasn't the kinks. They weren't the first ones. It was God himself. See, the Psalms are divinely inspired musical art that declare to us and that we ourselves echo, we had this morning, concerning what we believe and not just about any old thing, like roses are red, violets are blue, singing about things. No, no, no. Not about a nation, not about your favorite sports club, but about God and ourselves within this narrative of reality, what we call history. With all these things in mind, I want you to turn to the book of Psalms in your Bible, chapter 1. We won't be reading this psalm this week. We won't really be reading many psalms at all, but I want you to turn 
there physically and do some exploring with me. I want you to feel the notes of God's divine concerto on your fingertips as if you were a violinist in the pit getting ready to start playing the music in front of you. And, and sheet music, speaking of that, to the untrained eye, the notes on that sheet music, they seem random, just dots and bars. And what is all of this stuff? That's what it is to me. I don't know how to do that. I just hit stuff, you know? I don't know how to play sheet music. But to trained eye that knows those random dots and bars and all those things display in their own language a structure that produces harmonious single song all together with all the individual themes and ups and downs throughout its concept album. All right, are you at the Psalms? Are you there? Everybody with me? You sure? Okay. What are the Psalms? Start asking some questions as we look. What are the Psalms? They're songs, right? All right, we can close. Rick knows what they are. Psalms are poetic songs, the Old Testament. They are poetry at their core that were set to musical tunes, many of which we'll never know the original of at all. The word psalm comes from the Greek psalmos, which simply means song of melody sent to, uh, set to musical instruments, like, like a tambourine or a lyre, a guitar, like a lyre sort of. The Psalms are in a category of Scripture known as the writings, which are predominantly made of what we call wisdom literature. Think, you know, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, some, some of that stuff. Wisdom literature is poetic. Poetic. It's not primarily narrative. Another word for narrative is, is prose, right? It's not chronological events. Think about, like, Goldilocks and the three bears. She comes in, she does all these things. This one's not good. This one's uh, too soft. This one's just right, right? And we get to a conclusion. That is narrative. There is not really any chronology. Prose, think of it like this. Prose is how we talk and communicate normally. All of what I'm giving you today in a sermon is prose, even if what you're telling is full of symbolism. Prose has no rhythm, okay? Poetry, on the other hand, may implement even the same words of prose, but it's written in such a way as to convey a beat, right? Let me, let me give you an example real quick. Ready? The Son of God has set his love and affection upon me, and I know this because the scriptures tell me this great and glorious truth. No rhythm, right? No rhythm, right? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Same glorious truth set to a beat. The Psalms are poetic, and your Bibles do a great job of showing what is prose and what is poetry. That's, that's why I'm, yeah, I wanna make sure I said it right. Prose and poetry. That, that's why you'll notice the Psalms are in block print. You see in front of you, they, they look even different how they're printed. They're broken out in what are called strokes or lines rather than like these big sentences right? So these are God-inspired songs in poetic form. And just like our modern notion of music within the Psalter, which is just another way of saying the collection of psalms, the hymnal, within the Psalter, there are these various genres. Just like whenever you flip through the radio, if you still do that and don't just listen to your phone, you come across these different stations. You've got Outlaw Country with Willie, 
right? And then the ne- right next to it's R&B and then rock and then oldies and then terrible Caleb music and then all this stuff. You just flip through the stuff, genre, category. See, in the Psalter, we have songs and categories or genre, thanksgiving, of lament, of imprecatory, or like praying against your enemies, vengeance. You have royal psalms, thanks, you know, thankful, joyful songs, those types of things. And they're still a part of the singular concept album it has a singular message. Those are the psalms. Good? How did we get them? How do we get the psalms? See, this question is actually going to kind of open up small can of worms about what we call transmission theory. Here's your big seminary stuff, so when you go to work tomorrow or you're talking to your girlfriends or whatever, you can impress them, okay? You say, look, oh, yeah, I know this. Transmission theory about how we got God's word, how we received it in general, right? All right, I want you to brace yourself. I'm about to say something really shocking. Hey, everybody? Sebastian, you listening to me, bro? I want you to listen. Shocking. The Bible has been edited. (gasps) Zach's a liberal. Oh my goodness, he doesn't think the word of God's actually the word of God. Oh, right? Everybody gets it. No, 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 none of that. See, we've had, we've, we've come to have a false understanding of how we have gotten the scriptures. Many actually never stop and consider how we've got the word of God. They just think that it simply dropped out of the sky. Like here it is. Oh, there we go. Moses got it. It could have went down to anybody else, but Moses caught it like a butterfly net up there on Mount Sinai. He got it. No, that's, that's not how it happened. Second Peter 1.21 says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture was produced first and foremost by God in His grace, choosing certain men to speak and reveal Himself to. These men as prophets of God, representatives, spoke, but they spoke as men, And they confirmed their status as prophets, representatives of God, when what they spoke came to pass. The prophet or the leader carried along by the Holy Spirit, he didn't go into like a trance, like, you know, and then wake up three days later somewhere else. No, he didn't go into a trance and write scripture. Scripture, rather, arose out of ordinary means and circumstances. The Holy Spirit sovereignly carried these men along in such a way that the words and ideas of Scripture were written down without diminishing the character and style of the man. That's why 1 John sounds completely different than like Romans, but yet at the same time, they don't because we have the singular author of the Holy Spirit behind it. Much of the early portions of Scripture were, were oral They were passed down through generations before committed to writing. So here's the thing. The final form of Scripture that we have, the final form displays in and of itself that there were other documents, other sources that God sovereignly led those human agents who wrote the Scriptures to consult what we would call, you know, source material. And sometimes the source material is like behind the text. We don't really know, trying to figure out what's going on there. But then it's also right in front of you. You can't deny it. You want me to prove it to you? Proverbs 25, 1. 
These are also the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. The men of Hezekiah's reign found a ton of scripture that had been abandoned in the temple as, as the Israelites, as God's people, went and worshipped false gods. They found it all, and then they copied it and put it together as they were guided in. What we know as Proverbs 25.6 could have been the very first proverb Solomon ever wrote, but copied it. And just as an aside, the chapter and verses in your Bible, they're not inspired. They're not inspired of the Holy Spirit. The numbering system came about in its final form in the, the Middle Ages as scribes and priests were trying to find ways to, to make it easier to reference things. That's why you'll never hear Jesus say, for example, in Isaiah 61, verse 3, he says, You'll hear, you have heard it in Isaiah said, was he? So yes, the Bible has been edited, but not the way that your liberal German scholar would tell you. It's edited in that over time, the people of God have always recognized the threefold division of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's exactly what Jesus recognized as the Old Testament scriptures in Luke 24. And the New Testament came about in the same way as the old with God's people, his apostles, the followers, the first followers of Jesus Christ writing the scriptures. We even see Peter referring to Paul's writings as scripture on par with the Old Testament in 2 Peter 3.16. We're not missing any books Aside from a few knuckleheads in early church councils like Marcion, uh, he was a, he's a piece. Uh, we've had this universal consensus of what can, constitutes Scripture, which are God's, uh, which books are God's word from a prophet or an apostle, and attested to by the legacy of God's people. But this this big idea is something that we don't think about. The Bible was written over forty. Uh, by 40 authors over 1,500 years carried along by the same Holy Spirit. It didn't start off with Genesis through Deuteronomy and like this big binder, and then Joshua picked up and added to it, and on, so on and so forth. For much of the history of God's people, the documents were scattered and not compiled, and yet there was this progressive revelation that everything went together. Hugely important idea, okay? God's providence shows this, that he sovereignly inspired the men the very ones who would compile the scriptures even, that we would have them all in one place in one book, even inspiring any of the updates that we have. And by updates, I don't mean that they, they went back and just struck complete parts of the Bible out and changed it to be something that they want it to be. Updates like this. In the opening text of, uh, of I'm sorry, in, in a text of Mark 12, 26, Jesus says this, you have heard in the book of Moses, right? So he's not quoting anything. You have, he's not quoting a number. You've heard in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, that's Exodus. So we see no verse or anything. Moses, from the internal testimony of scripture, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, that's what Moses wrote. But how did Moses write this? Deuteronomy 34, 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. How did he, how did he do that? Right? An unknown someone that we will not know until we stand before the Lord in glory had that in there, seeing that it's all part of the story, sovereignly carried along by the Spirit. 
So why all this talk about how we even got the Bible? Well, because the Psalms are just the same. They function as like this microcosm, this zoomed-in version of this glorious event of how we even get these scriptures. The Holy Spirit carrying men along to write and to compile the authoritative Word of God. The Psalms have been compiled and edited into a specific order. God did not say to David, David, this is Psalm 51. And then two days later, David, this is Psalm 52. Not how it worked at all. The Psalms weren't numbered again until much later. These songs of Scripture were given by God to various men through various circumstances in history, and they were instantly seen as Psalms of the Lord. They came through circumstances such as enemies or thanksgiving and praise or deep, deep depression. Again, many of them were not written down. Some were just oral for a time. Does this mean that there are no more songs in Scripture other than the Psalms? Obviously not. We've got Deuteronomy 32. We've got Miriam's song in Exodus. We've got Deborah's song in Judges 5. But the Psalter is closed. The Psalms are closed. It's a fixed number because, ready, God sovereignly directed its compilation. Not just about the writing, but also about the compiling. The official hymnal, the official hymnal has Psalms in the beginning that maybe are later than others. It doesn't matter because God has sovereignly guided how they're going to be compiled. So are they random? Or is there a structure? Listen, I know this, is, this, this feels heady. I know this feels like not a typical sermon because it's, it's not. Because if we don't have a, a right view before we plop down in the Psalms, this is, like doing, this is like doing the forms that you do before you do the forms for your taxes, right? It makes it easier. If we just plop down in there and start going, we're, we're going to miss exactly what God has before us. Are they random or is there a structure? There is a structure and not just in one way. The Psalms have like this large structure and this small, tiny structure woven throughout. One of the big structures is this. You got your Bible open? You got Psalm 1? You got Psalm 1? Okay. Look directly above it. Do you see the big superscript? What does it say? Book 1. Book 1. See that? Now flip to Psalm 42. I'll give you a minute. I need a drink anyway. Flip to Psalm 42. Who's at Psalm 42 already? All right. Lala, what's it say? Book 2. Oh, okay. Psalm 73. This is, we'll make a game out of this. See who can do it the fastest. Psalm 73. Whoever lands are just yell it out. Book 3. All right. Psalm 107. I'm sorry, Psalm 90. How do you know? Oh, book four. And then Psalm 107, just so you can guess. Book six. Oh, no. Uh, Psalm, right. Book five. Interesting. Five separate books of Psalms. Now, let me kind of poke the tiger a little bit. 
Isn't there another book of Scripture that's divided into five books but known as one book? Anybody know what that one's called? It's, it actually talks about the story of creation and fall and redemption. One big story. Anybody know what it's called? The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, known as the, the Torah, the instruction, the law. That's interesting, isn't it? There's been some speculation over the past hundred years by some scholars that the, the five books of the Psalms are meant to mirror like thematically each individual book of the Pentateuch. But uh, one of my favorite theologians, O. Palmer Robertson, he noted attempts to find a grand theme in each book of the Psalms that matches the respective book in the Pentateuch is it's futile because they're missing the point in trying to do that close to the kingdom of God, but they're too focused in on, like, you know, they're missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Here's how the five books of Moses match up with the five books of the Psalms. What are the books of Moses known as? The law, the Torah, the teaching, right? And what is the Torah all about? About history, about God, creation, fall, redemption. Remember that? Know these things? Founding of a nation, God's rules. Right? Genesis is not just about creation. Like that's the only place where it's at. Deuteronomy also talks about it. Exodus is not just where the Ten Commandments are. Deuteronomy also has that. The history and themes and people, the law, they're all woven together in this one story with five different parts. So the five books of the Psalms match up to the five books of the Pentateuch in this manner. They teach us of our history. They teach us of God's law. They teach us of God's creation. They teach us of his rule. They truly are what Luther said music to be, little sermons that we easily remember set to music. It's scripture set to music. The Psalms, in the way they're structured, mirror those first five books. They declare with authoritative vigor the law, God's instruction. Now, that number five is also an interesting number when connected to another fact in Scripture. There are five old covenants. There's five covenants within the old covenant. We have Adam and Abraham, or Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. There's a sixth. That's the new covenant, but it's prophesied, and it comes to pass in Jesus. So throughout the Psalms, we see these themes of those covenants over and over again. Like with Adam, the covenant of life to obey. With Noah, God's destruction of sin. With, with Abraham, the promise to make a nation. With Moses, the good and righteous, gracious law of living under God's rule. And, and David, the covenant godly ruler that kind of typifies God as king. Okay, there's that. And one last big idea structure of the Psalms is this. We can see a categorization of kind of themes for each book. These are from Robertson again. Book one is about confrontation. We're confronted with the God of creation, with our fall into sin, the effects thereof, all of these things, and, and having enemies. Book two is about communication, that this, this confrontation is to be proclaimed throughout the world, bringing an idea of repentance. Book three is the devastation of what happens when we fall into sin and and how God even endures through that, even when it looks like the crown, so to speak, is cast into the dust, like at the end of Psalm 89. Book four is about maturation. It's markedly different than the books before it because it's all about coming into 
uh, it's like a coming to terms with God's glory of seeing his promises and all of these things. And the final book is about consummation. It's the climax, the end game to book one of, of God faithfully displaying his rule and reign, right? So what's the concept album all about? What's it all about? We've got the structure. We've got where it came from. What's the concept album about? What's the big theme? You ready? Kingdom of God. What it's about. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. Psalms are amazing, guys. They're not just old things that we just say to sound pious. They teach us just as much as any other book in the scriptures. For brevity's sake, a few little ones, a few little microstructures. Each of the five books begins with one or two introductory psalms that set the stage for what that book's about. The psalms also kind of play off little words and weave those through. And at the end of the first four books, there's also a doxology that ends with kind of like, may the Lord be praised, the God of Israel, all four of them. And then book five ends with Psalm 45, 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And then Psalm 146 through 50, each being a cap that corresponds to a book before it. So, you know, 146 book one, 147 book two, and so forth. They all start by fulfilling what Psalm 145, 145.21 says, right? You ready? Psalm 146.1, praise the Lord. Psalm 47.1, praise the Lord. Psalm 48.1, praise the Lord. Psalm 149, praise the Lord. And then Psalm 150, we know this one. Let's say this together. Praise ye the Lord, right? Oh my goodness. Amazing how that goes together, huh? So how are we to use them? How are we to take all of this idea about the Psalms in this kind of teaching style sermon before we start unpacking, expositing them. What are we to do with them? We just kind of read them, maybe memorize a couple of them, use them at weddings and funerals, maybe have like a random excerpt that we put on a bumper sticker, right? No, we use them exactly how Jesus used them. Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm. Luke 24, 44. Jesus said to them, the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If the Psalms are ultimately about the kingdom of God, God's chosen people and God's place under God's rule, then we sing, we read, we meditate on these songs, seeing that every single one of them point to Christ, who is the King of Kings, ruling and reigning over his people in God's place, which is all over the earth. We are confronted in the Psalms with sin when we see ourselves yearning for a savior, a warrior king, and we see our sin cast upon him. We are confronted with enemies. We cry out for salvation that God would be justice, that he would defeat them, and he has. We're confronted with the majesty of God. We call, we're called to sing and bow down to him and praise. And when we have the maturity of faith to hear this one singular song and all the various songs, we with chest held high and air in our lungs can declare loudly, praise the Lord. That's how we use them. So why study the Psalms? Because they are of God, teaching us 
of God and his kingdom, and they call us to hear the truth and beauty of music for the glory of God and our good. I leave you with this. God himself is the perfect divine singer-songwriter. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with singing. God himself sings. If we reflect his image, then so shall we. And if we do not, the stones would do it for us. This is why we study the Psalms. This is why we sing them. This is why we commit them to heart. And this is why we joyfully go to the Psalter realizing God sings. So do we. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you.